where we live, we have this beautiful view of uh, the city, the citadel in the center of the city. And in the distance, you can see the shadowy outline of the Zagros Mountains, the largest mountain range between Afghanistan and the Alps in Switzerland. And they're stunning. Uh, I just love seeing the dark, shadowy outline of those mountains every morning when I wake up. Now, one of the silver linings of a COVID lockdown in the Middle East is that no one was allowed out of their houses, no one was allowed to drive, no one was allowed to go and work in the factories, and the smog that our city is famous for disappeared in a matter of two days. And for about six weeks, we had the most incredible, glorious view of these mountains as we had never seen before. We were seeing the, the hues of the rock. We could see caverns. We could see forests. We could see even babbling brooks and waterfalls coming down these snowy mountain peaks against a dark blue sky. It was incredible. And then... As days went on and people started uh, to go back to work, the smog came in again and we lost that incredible view. And we went back to the dark, shadowy outline uh, of the mountains. Now, you've been going through a series through Hebrews. Now, Hebrews was written almost definitely before AD 70, and uh, during the time of the Second Temple of Herod. And what had happened was there were Jewish believers, followers of Christ, who were from a Jewish background, who after coming to know Christ, they were tempted to go back to the old temple worship as they had known, as they had been taught in the Old Testament. And the writer of Hebrews, he's writing to them to basically tell them, you shouldn't be doing that. Christ is greater, Jesus is greater than the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was a shadow of Christ that is to come. Why would you follow a shadow when you've been given the real substance? And so the whole book of Hebrews is basically a book about the superiority and the greatness of Jesus. So it starts off in chapter 1, and it talks about how Jesus is a greater revelation. In chapter 3, it talks about how he's a better Moses, a better prophet. Chapter 4, he's a better Sabbath and a better Abraham. Chapter 7 talks about him being a better high priest than the one that was given in the Old Covenant. Chapter 8 talks about Jesus' covenant with the church, us, the people of God, is better than the old covenant with the people of God. And then chapter 9, where we've come to today, he's going to be talking about Jesus in a way that says he is a better atonement, a better mercy, a better forgiveness for your sins than what was offered in the Old Testament. And he starts off by arguing this, by presenting a shadow of Christ. And then he's going to be talking about the substance of the atonement. And finally, in verse 14, he will talk about 
the significance of this atonement. So the shadow of the atonement, the, uh, the substance of the atonement, Jesus Christ, and then the significance of the atonement. And the whole point of Hebrews is to argue to these Jewish believers who were tempted to go back to their old regulations here that it is perverse to desire to go back to a polluted view of the mountain when you have now been given the clear view uh, through Christ. The true substance has been manifested, and it would be perverse to long for the polluted view yet again. So he starts off by talking about the shadow of Christ, the shadow of the atonement, And he does this by, in verse 1 to 5, taking us through a little ticky tour of the inner workings of the uh, temple. And the summary of this temple is very, very selective. Basically, the writer here, he has summarized five chapters of Exodus in five verses. And he's been very selective about which details to put in the summary. And the reason for that is he's choosing details which will point the readers to Christ and show how these details point to Christ, how the temple was a shadow of Christ's atonement in particular. So in verse 2, it opens by saying, in the tabernacle. Now, this is an interesting detail because the tabernacle was a reference to a tent, This is a reference to the time of Moses until the time of Solomon. The Jews had never worshipped God in a tent, the the readers of of Hebrews at the time. They had always experienced a temple. So why is the writer here making a reference to the time of Moses and not a time of David or Herod or a time when there was a temple? The reason for that is because he's making a reference that the sanctuary of God, as we knew in the Old Testament, is temporary. It's not a permanent dwelling place of God. It's a tent. Something more permanent is coming. And he then begins to talk about this, and he talks about the inner courts of the temple. He doesn't talk about the courts on the outside of the, of, uh, the tabernacle. He doesn't talk about the, the courts of the Gentiles and the courts of the woman. He goes straight to the inner workings, the inner chambers of this tabernacle. And we enter the first section, the place which is called the holy place of God. And he mentions first that there is the bread of the presence Now, these were 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it is showing that the people of God, they have fellowship with God. They are before God. And then he mentions that there is a lampstand. In Hebrew, it's referred to as a menorah. And this was, you've probably seen pictures of it. It was a candle which had seven candles held in a candlestick. This was the menorah. Now, this represented the light of God, God using the the holy number of seven, but it also had a very practical purpose. The tent and the temple, neither of them had windows. There was no light 
whatsoever inside the tent, inside uh, the tabernacle, except the light of God. You could not see what you were doing if you were a priest in there without the light of God shining onto the holy place. And this is a great reminder for us that we can only see God, we can only know God, we can only experience his atonement for our sins and have peace with God if he makes a special revelation to us. We cannot see God, we cannot know God, we cannot have peace with God, we cannot have forgiveness of, with God by natural revelation, by the light of creation, the sun and the moon. Um, there is, this is very important because I think often these days there's a temptation to believe that we don't need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need to go to places like Iraq and send missionaries there to share the gospel. The light of creation, the glories of creation, our God-given consciences, that will draw people to God and they will repent of their sins and they will be saved. Romans 1 and 2 says, natural revelation is not enough for us to be saved. It is only enough to damn us. In order to be saved, we must have a special revelation. We must have the Bible preached to us, the Holy Spirit enlightening our hearts so that we can receive Christ through the proclamation of his gospel. Uh, in Romans 10, it says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It is a sobering thought to think that the 35 million people in Iraq will all perish eternity in hell, estranged from God, unless churches like City on a Hill send missionaries to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and his atonement that can be received through faith and repentance. There is no way that you can see the inner workings of the temple without the light of the menorah. And in the same way, we cannot experience atonement with Christ unless someone preaches to us the gospel of Christ. And at this point, in verse uh, 4 and 3, we then go beyond the holy place. And we go to what's called the most holy place or the inner room in the NIV, the inner chamber. And I do need to give you a little bit of a disclaimer here. A couple of the details in verses uh, 3 and 4 are different to the details of the um, most holy place given in Exodus. They're slightly different. And liberals will have a, uh, they have a field day with this, and they say that there's a contradiction in God's word. It can't be from God. It's very easy to explain, but I will need a bit of time to do that. If you're interested in that and uh, you're stumbling over that because it's different to Exodus, speak to me after the service. But he mentions here that there is an altar the altar of incense. This would be burnt inside the, 
the, um, the most holy place only on the day of atonement. And the reason the writer is writing this detail in this ticky tour of the tabernacle is he's drawing the reader's attention to the day of atonement, the one day of the year when the high priest entered the most holy place. And this incense would burn and it would skew, the smoke from the incense would veil the view of the Ark of the Covenant for the high priest inside the most holy place. And then it mentions that there is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if, you, if you're a fan of Indiana Jones, you've probably seen this. It, it was a box about yay long, about yay wide, about yay high. It was made from a, a type of timber like kari. It's called shittim wood. It does not rot. And then it was covered with gold. And on the lid of the box, this uh, lid was actually called the atonement cover, or a more literal translation, the mercy seat. There were actually two cherubim that were two statues of angels sitting above it. Now, one thing that, the, um, that uh, George Lucas got wrong in Indiana Jones, or is it Steven Spielberg? Spielberg? Okay. Is that there is... a he suggests that God is inside the box, inside the Ark of the Covenant. No Jew actually believed that. What it was actually seen as was actually a throne, a seat, or even a footstool. God was not in the box. He sat on the box, above the box. And every year, the high priest would enter, and he would pour blood on the mercy seat, the cover, And that blood would cover God's view of the inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant were the two tablets, the Ten Commandments that we have broken, the commandments that show that we are sinners, and the blood of a spotless beast offered by God's appointed high priest would block the view of God's view of our sin. And inside that box, as well as the tablets, there are a couple of other things. He mentions an urn of manna. Manna was the food that God provided when the Hebrews left Egypt to go to the promised land. It is a a reference here that God's salvation is by God's provision. He provides the means by which we are saved. And then it has a very interesting detail, and I love this. It mentions Aaron's staff that was budded. Now, Aaron was the first high priest in the Mosaic Covenant. And this is actually a reference to a story that you can find in Numbers 16, Numbers 17. Basically, there was a lot of people who were frustrated that God had appointed Aaron and his family to be the high priests. Others wanted that recognition. I don't know what their motives were. But anyway, God said, everyone, get uh, 12 representatives from the 12 tribes and get them to bring their staffs and plant them before my tabernacle. And in the morning, the one that has budded into a tree 
That's the one who's to be my high priest. So in the morning, Aaron's staff had budded, and it was actually growing almonds, it says. Now, there's a very interesting detail to this. God, in Numbers, says, put the, um, put the, um, the budded staff inside the most holy place. And the reason for that is that it will be a reminder that only my anointed, uh, the high priest of my choosing, can enter into my presence. And put that in the most holy place as a reminder. Hebrews 9 puts a very interesting detail here. The budded staff of Aaron is actually inside the Ark of the Covenant. It's hidden from view. It's inside the box. Now, if you wanted something as a reminder that there is only the most exclusive access, you would put a sign at the door, wouldn't you? You would say only, only registered and qualified personnel can enter this room. This one is inside the room, hidden away in a cabinet. Why is this? Well, it's because the high priest that God has anointed does not come from man, it comes from the heart of God himself. God will provide the high priest that will offer atonement for our sins. At this point, I hope you can see how this is pointing to Jesus Christ. And then verse 5, we get to this. It says, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Uh, Psalm 80 verse 1 talks about this, that God is enthroned between the cherubim. But then there's a very interesting detail. The writer says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. The Ark of the Covenant had been lost. In the Herod's temple, at the time of uh, the book of Hebrews being written, there was an empty room. The Ark of the Covenant was gone. When the Babylonians invaded um, the, the promised land of Israel they took all of the gold out of the temple, including the Ark of the Covenant. They probably melted it down, and probably that gold is now sitting in a vault somewhere. The Ark of the Covenant was lost. Pompey, when he entered Israel in 63 BC, he actually entered the temple, and thus desecrating it as an unbelieving Gentile. And he writes that he was really surprised and shocked that inside the temple there was no idol, there was no statue, it was an empty room. Jeremiah, in chapter 3, verse 16, he writes this, In those days, declares the Lord, there shall no more, they, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed, it shall not be made again. Jeremiah was predicting that the Ark of the Covenant was going to go. It was going to disappear. This happened in his lifetime. It was only a reminder that the tabernacle was temporary. It was gone now. The writer is saying that this shadow that we had before, it's already passing away. We don't even have the Ark of the Covenant. We can't speak about these things in detail like we could before. It is fading away to make way for the real substance, Jesus Christ. 
Now in verse 6 to verse 10, he's now going to speak about the role of the priests and particularly the role of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And he's going to argue that Jesus is our high priest and he offers a far greater, a better sacrifice, a better atonement. So in the holy place, in that outer room, priests would go in there every day. They would light the incense. They would, um, they would uh, trim the, the wick from the candles of the menorah. Every week they would actually replace the bread on the table, the bread of the presence, so it wouldn't go stale. But they were not permitted to go into the most holy place. Only the high priest and only once a year was he allowed to go beyond the curtain into the most holy place. Now, can you imagine being one of those priests in those days, always working in the outer room, always seeing the glow of the curtain from the light of the menorah? Every day, you would be wondering, what's behind it? Can I take a peek? Oh, the incredible privilege to go into that room. The exclusive access and the very restricted access of the most holy place was a constant reminder for the priests and for all of the people of God that something better was to come. That this was only a shadow of God's glory. The glory of God was veiled by a curtain. It was meant to create an expectation for a greater revelation, a greater high priest, a greater Moses, Jesus Christ himself. Now, in verse 9, it does say something here which does stumble a few people. It says this, which is symbolic for the present age. The first section, the outer room, that is symbolic for the present age. Without going into details, this is referring to the time before Christ. It's not referring to the time that the, our present age, 2021, and it's not referring to the age that the writer is writing the, the epistle of Hebrews to the readers. It's referring to the time before Christ, the time which has now come, the reformation that is mentioned in um, verse 10. That comes with Christ. Christ came and he tore the veil from top to bottom when he died on the cross. We now have access to the most holy place because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Verse 9 says this too. These priests, these high priests, they offered gifts and sacrifices and offered uh, sacrifices that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And the high priest would go in to the, great, uh, the most holy place once a year to offer atonement for the unknown and unintentional sins that were performed in ignorance for the people. The exclusive access 
to that high place to offer atonement. And also the repetition that it happened every year, that was to point the Jews to a future atonement in Christ Jesus. The fact that it happened every year, that was to teach them something. This atonement, it's not permanent. The atonement that you get from the day of atonement when the high priest offers the, 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 the unblemished blood of a pure beast in the, upon the Ark of the Covenant, that doesn't actually clear your guilty conscience. That can clear the, your flesh, but not your conscience. There must be something better because it wears off every year. Why do we need to keep repeating it? It cannot purify the conscience of the worshiper. It doesn't matter how many thousands of sheep and cattle were sacrificed every day and every year. They couldn't fully remove a person's guilty conscience before a most high and holy God. The repetition of the ceremony demonstrates that. That's the argument that the writer is making here. There has to be a better high priest. There has to be something that we can expect in the future that will be a better sacrifice. Christ's atonement is that sacrifice. His atonement is not repeated every year. It is a once and for all. Verse 11 says that when he died on the cross and when he was uh, and then when he was resurrected from the grave and he ascended into the heavens he never entered the tabernacle the temple that was on earth that was just a picture uh, in some me- measure the the architecture it it symbolically represented a heavenly temple a heavenly tabernacle that Christ after his ascension he entered he entered into this most holy place before God the Father and he did not present the blood of a bull or a goat or a lamb he presented his own blood and poured it on the mercy seat of God so that God's view of our sin would be covered over and we would be purified in our flesh and in our conscience that's why we don't have an altar in this church the the moment you get one i'm not coming back we have a pulpit not for offering a new sacrifice but a pulpit for declaring the eternal redemption that has already been achieved by the atonement of christ on the cross by his blood Now, if we think we need to please God somehow with our good works, Hebrews here says it's a dead work. We are atoned for not by any work that we have done, but only by the work of Christ. If we ever think we need to get right with God, we need to uh, be uh, purified with God, with service in the church, with loving our neighbor, if we think we can be justified from our sins with good, righteous Christian acts, what we are really proclaiming is that Christ's blood is insufficient. It, it wasn't enough. It wears off every year, just like the blood of the bull and the goat at, on the Day of Atonement. But Christ's blood is not insufficient. 
It covers all sin for all time for his people. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. He entered the heavenly temple and he offered his own blood. And it's an eternal redemption. It doesn't wear off every year. Now, many of you are probably thinking, well, this is all very well. I can understand why the writer needed to write to these Jewish believers in the first century. If If they're tempted to go back to old temple worship and enter the temple on Temple Mount in Jerusalem and go back to the old ways, they're confused. They need to be corrected. But what, why is it in canon? Why is it in our Bibles? What relevance does it have for me as a Gentile Christian who's got no Jewish blood, who's never been tempted to go to temple worship before? What, what is the relevance to me? Well, the thing is, just like first Jewish background believers in the first century were tempted to go back to temple worship, we have a temptation to please God with our good works and to seek our justification and the purification of us from our sins through good works. And I think the reason for that is we actually downplay the high priesthood of God. Now, in Iraq, most Christians, because they're from a Muslim background, the center of the gospel for them is very much the incarnation. It's Christmas Day. They have spent their whole life seeing God as being distant, that the center of the gospel for them is actually Christmas. The idea that God in his great love comes to us and he bridges a chasm that we could never reach that is the center of the gospel for them Uh, for us i would say that the center of the gospel is actually good friday it's the cross jesus dies for our sins he takes the penalty of our sins so that we don't have to face that penalty I would say probably for someone from a Jewish background, it's probably Easter Sunday. It's the resurrection, the kingdom of God uh, coming in. Now, all of those focuses, there's nothing wrong with that. But the thing is, with all of these different groups, we all have a tendency to neglect the ascension. I'm sure if I was to ask you, explain the gospel in five minutes or less, probably none of you would mention the priesthood of God, the ascension that he has gone to God the Father and he is forever interceding for us, that he has offered his atonement to us. Now, the danger of that, when we neglect the Christ's priesthood, we, we know that his blood is the atoning blood that covers our sin and gives us mercy before God. But we can easily forget that like that, we presented the blood before God the Father. And when we neglect that, we can be tempted to think we need to present God Christ's blood in our lives somehow to God the Father. 
we need to demonstrate that we really believe Jesus Christ to convince God the Father to justify us. We need to do something. We need to read our Bibles more. We need to pray more. We need to evangelize more. Whatever the work is, verse 14 says that that work is a dead work. It cannot justify your sins. Your sins have been justified by the blood of Christ that Christ himself has presented. I love verse 14 here because it's actually Trinitarian. Read this. How much more will the blood of Christ, the Son of God, who through the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, God the Father, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ, the Son of God, his blood atones for our sin. It's presented by Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit who convinces us, who gives us faith in Christ, who unites us with the Son of God, and it presents us before God the Father, spotless and blameless. We are saved by the atoning blood of the Son of God. We are guided to God by the light of God the Holy Spirit to be presented before the Father, God the Father, faultless and blameless. He is the destination of our salvation. He is the means of our salvation. He is the way of our salvation. He is the cause of our salvation. We contribute nothing to being atoned before God the Father. All glory is to God. Now, what does it mean to have your conscience purified, to be freed from a guilty conscience? There's a comparison here between verse 9 and verse 14, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. When we talk about guilt, psychologists will actually put guilt into two categories. They will talk about objective guilt and subjective guilt. Now, objective guilt is when you're actually guilty. You do something wrong, you're found out about it, and you feel guilty. You steal a Mars bar from the supermarket, you're caught by the security cameras, you're shamed, you feel guilty because you committed the crime. Subjective guilt is a little bit different. Subjective guilt is when you haven't committed a sin, but someone sins against you. And because you've been violated, because of what that person has done to you, and you are the victim, you feel guilty. You feel shame. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the good news is if you are suffering from subjective guilt, you don't need to have a guilty conscience. The way to overcome that is to look to the cross and know that God's amazing grace in Christ Jesus has made you pure. You're not filthy. You're not dirty. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the only three persons in this entire universe whose opinion actually matters in, in this regard, they see you as pure and holy like God himself. And what if you're guilty of objective guilt? You've actually sinned against someone. 
Well, the Bible is very clear on this. When we sin against someone, we should seek reconciliation. We should seek to uh, correct the wrong. We should try to get their forgiveness. But that's not always possible. Sometimes the person refuses to forgive us. Sometimes the person who we have sinned against has moved away. Maybe they've died. Well, the Bible here is saying that you don't need to feel impure. Christ's blood here, offered by Christ, has purified your conscience. That sin has been dealt with. His blood is sufficient. You are clean. You don't have to do a good work, a dead work, to try and please God. You have been freed from dead works. Final mention here. There is a temptation here that when we realize that we offer nothing and contribute nothing to our justification, there is a temptation to think we can live however we want. If I don't need to perform good works in order to be justified and made pure before God, I can do whatever I want. The writer puts a stop to that in the final part of verse 14. He says, you, God Without uh, the, the Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You haven't been freed and made pure before God to give you a license to sin, but you've been given a license to live a life to glorify God. You are no longer trying to live a life to earn his favor, but you can now live a life for his pleasure. There's an old hymn we used to sing. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you be whiter, much whiter than snow? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Sin stains are lost by the life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you do service for Jesus, your King? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you live daily his praises to sing? There's power in the blood. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we can pray to you now and enter your throne room, the most holy place, only because Christ has gone before us. We would be zapped dead in your presence if it wasn't for the atoning blood of Christ Jesus that he so graciously offered uh, before your holy throne on our behalf. We praise you for this. Forgive us of the incredible temptation that we so often face daily to try and earn your favor with good works. And in doing so, we proclaim that the blood of Christ is insufficient. What blasphemy. Forgive us of this sin, both individually and collectively, corporately as a church, city on a hill. May our service to you be not one that seeks to curry favor, to earn justification, but can we know fully in the quiet chambers of our hearts that we have been made pure and righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ that he has offered himself. 
And in doing so, may our good works be out of thanksgiving for the atonement that has been achieved. For your glory and for our joy. Amen.